This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. In this episode, we're going to explore the ideas and frameworks in a new book, Influential Internal Communication, subtitled Streamline Your Corporate Communication to Drive Efficiency and Engagement by Jenny Field. Now, Jenny is the nearest, I think, we have on this show to a regular guest. She is a business communication strategist, an international public speaker, a podcast host, and is also the immediate past chair of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations here in the UK. But aside from all that, she is razor sharp in her thinking and refreshingly direct in her approach. Her book is a field guide, pun intended there, to taking your organisation from chaos to calm. So we talk about chaos, what this looks like from a business perspective, what causes chaos and how we can use communication as a diagnostic tool to identify the root causes of these business problems and ultimately fix them for the long term. So this gets us talking about change and leaders' preoccupation with it and the levers we can pull inside our organisations to drive engagement and how some of these levers have more power potentially than others. We also talk about organisations as conceptual entities that can sometimes stand between ourselves and our employees 
and the people we seek to serve. Now, my exchanges with Jenny have always been as entertaining as they are thought-provoking, and this conversation is no exception. So, without further ado, I bring you Jenny Field. So, Jenny, welcome very much for the third time to the Internal Comms Podcast. We're making a bit of a habit of this, aren't we? I know, I know. We'll have to stop after this. I've run out of things to say. (laughs) I just really wanted to have a conversation with you about your new book. First of all, talk to me about what prompted you to write this book and who did you have in mind as a reader as you were writing it? The reason for writing the book was was really because I read a lot of other books and thought, if I could take a, a bit of this book and a bit of this book and my experience and smoosh that all together and give that to every business leader I know, then they would have everything they need to at least make a start on exploring how to change communication inside their organization. So that was the kind of thinking behind it was... You don't need to read loads of textbooks or loads of in-depth books, but actually just reading those top level things would give you enough. So that was the the kind of reason. And it was really for business leaders. So the the book is aimed both at communications teams and business leaders, but it was really focusing on the non-communication people. That's the big focus for me, because I think if everybody just understood a little bit more about communication, the impacts it can have on the workplace the workplace would be a very different place. So it definitely, you can tell that the book is born from experience and you even have in there little sort of conversations, snippets of conversations you've had with clients over the years, which I love because it really did just bring all your examples to life. But I'm intrigued by what specific experiences you've had, either from your consulting days or in-house days that really did help shape this book. Gosh, so many experiences. So I've jumped around quite a lot in my career and I've talked about that a lot around, I used to spend sort of a couple of years here and there and and moved into different industries. So I think moving around a lot has given me lots of experiences that have shaped, you know, who I am today and what the consultancy does today. But there's some really specific ones for me. There's, I spent a lot of time at SSP who do the food and drink in train stations and airports. And that was such a journey from a career point for me for setting up the internal comms function for the UK to leaving there six years later as the global head of comms. And the business was privately owned. It was publicly listed while I was there. So all of that changed, the change in CEO. I had, you know, at least two CEOs, three CEOs in the UK, two global. So all of those things were really challenging and really shaping for me. And then even beyond that, going on to the role that I lasted in-house as a communications director was one of my most challenging roles. And I think I learned a lot about myself in that role. And I learned a lot about leadership, authenticity, all of those things. So it's all of, it's all of those things that have played a role and that come through, like you said, in the book of those little examples that I share, but I try not to give too much away, (laughs) just a little bit. (laughs) You're still protecting your NDAs. (laughs) (laughs) So the opening chapter, Foundations, does a great job of helping sort of define this slightly, uh, and let's admit it, sometimes it is a bit amorphous or nebulous internal communications. There's many definitions of it. You touch on also the difference between IC and employee engagement. 
And you mentioned the McLeod and Clark report, Engaging for Success. And indeed, we've had Nita Clark on this show. And you talk about these four enablers of employee engagement. So a strong narrative, the right kind of line managers, employee voice and organisation integrity. But what you go on to say is that in your experience, these enablers are not of equal weight. And I wonder if you can explain a little bit about that, because I think this sort of goes partly to the heart of the way that you look at business. Yeah. So this is actually a topic that I want to do some research on in the future, but I've got too many things I want to do. So I've had to park that for a while. So I have worked in organisations where there has been a very strong narrative. So the clarity of, of purpose has been really strong. Now, it might not have been a purpose that you can all get behind that's of a grand purpose. You know, it was shareholder return. So we all knew what we were there to do. So there was a high level of what you could say was engagement. You know, people worked incredibly hard, very passionate, very driven, lots of long hours. This comes back to my whole thing of how do you define engagement? But that's another thing. That was was good. You know, you could see how engaged people were. At the same time, it didn't have a strong employee voice and it didn't have necessarily the right kind of managers in places. In another organisation I worked in, we had no strategic strong narrative. It was no, not clear at all what the organisation was, was doing, how it was knitted together. And there was a lot of complexity due to M&A and things like that. But it did have a very strong employee voice and it did have you know, the right kind of managers. The difference in those two organizations is the first one that had the strong narrative had, had quite low turnover, you know, especially at an operational level. You know, people were, were staying put for quite a long time. The other one that didn't have the strong narrative but had the high employee voice had a revolving door of people. So when I look at those two organizations, I'm looking at, okay, well, these four enablers can't be of equal weight because what I'm seeing is, is a very different outcome if you've got some of those levers dialed up and dialed down. So that's what I'd love to explore as a hypothesis in some research around, well, actually, let's test that and see whether they are of equal weight or whether you should focus on one more than the other. So are you saying it's likely that actually the strategic narrative needs to come fairly high up in that order then? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I guess otherwise, the danger is you could have busy fools. I mean, you could have yeah. people running around being very busy, but not actually supporting the higher purpose, as it were. Yeah. It's like you've been in some of the places I may have worked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, and I'm not a big fan of the busy fools because we can all do that, but it's not really not really doing anything. You know, employee voice is, is, is very important. The right kind of managers, very important. Organisation integrity, very important. But actually trying to tackle all four of those as an equal priority as an enabler, I think is very challenging for anyone in an organization. So definitely focusing on that narrative and understanding, you know, people understanding why they are doing what they're doing would be would be much higher for me than the others. Right. Okay. So talk us through your five steps that form your model for IC strategy and planning, because I thought that would be a, also quite helpful for listeners. Yeah. So this is the model I created uh, quite early on in my career because I've set up three or four communication functions. And this was just the process I went through. And so I've written it down as a model like, like we do. <laughs> so the first is insight. So making sure that you've got data 
an insight for what you're doing, even if that's the first time you're getting that. For me to go in setting up a function, I have to find out what people like, don't like, what they need to know, what they want to know, all those kind of things. So you have to start somewhere. So you've got to have the insight. The second is business intelligence. And that for me is understanding how the business works. So that might be things like annual reports and documents like that. But it's also understanding what the business does and how things work together. If you're making a widget, how does it get from A to B and who's involved in that? Because a a hierarchy organizational chart doesn't tell you that. And that's the bit you kind of need to, to unpick. So that's the bit I call business intelligence. Then you've got the principles and the principles that are sort of the objectives of the function or the objectives of the strategy, which gives us the measurement bit at the end. But the principles are also helpful to think about the purpose of the function, what it's there to do. You know, I talk a lot about defining internal communication for your organization. And it's the principles piece that kind of does that. Then you've got the communication. So kind of the tactical bit in terms of the channels uh, and how you're going to do that. And then the measurement at the end, which is aligned to principles, because you should have some KPIs that you can kind of pull through there. So that's those are the steps that I've always done and has helped me, you know, create internal comms strategies and plans that have enabled change and and all those good things that we try and do in organizations. And just for clarity, when you talk about principles, you're really talking about communications principles there? It's it's quite broad, I suppose. So if I think about when I worked in-house, the principles would be kind of, this is what we're going to do as a function. This is what we're not going to do as a function. Right. And it would also link us back to the objectives of the business strategy so that people could see how communication was enabling and delivering the business strategy, because it would also allow me to have conversations about resource, headcount, budget, all those kind of things, because my principles are kind of the output of the business intelligence and the insight. Yes, that makes sense. And also, I think really important, it's come up in quite a few of my interviews where people say, quite important to set out not just what you're going to do, but what you're not going to do. Yes, yes, definitely. And just really defining what the purpose of the function is. I'll I'll never forget someone saying to me a few years ago that, you know, the finance function, you know, is there to, to advise and support when it's needed, but people can go off and run their own budget. This should be the same for the communication function. You're there to advise and support when it's needed, but people should be able to have the skills to go and do their own communication. So just being clear about that purpose of function is just is just really important. So you write, without communication, there is chaos. And left unchecked, chaos can become toxic. So I was just interested in your definition of chaos inside organizations and what makes that chaos turn toxic at times. So it's a really loaded word, isn't it, chaos? I can I can feel people slightly clench whenever I use it. Um, so when I talk about chaos, I'm talking about things that you might not consider chaos, if that makes sense. So chaos isn't running around full of panic, full of worry, and you know, everyone running around like headless chickens. It can be something that is created quite slowly, and it can be something that comes from leaving things quite unchecked. So when I'm talking about chaos, I'm talking about things like, you know, a high turnover of staff or a leadership team that might be focusing maybe too much on financial reward for leaders and not fairness across the organization. Things like that that, that lead to, to it becoming toxic because of the impact it has on people. And um, there's a, a long list in the book where it kind of says these are all the different kinds of chaos you can find. In the work that I do now with clients, 
you know, the chaos can be things like not having policies and procedures in place because of growth that's happened so quickly. But now we're in a state of chaos because we don't know what we don't know and we're duplicating effort and people are doing too much stuff. So then you and then you can hear it as I'm describing it. You can hear me getting that. Oh, and then and then and then and then it's that. So that's yes. what you know, that's the chaos. That's the the feeling and that's what it can can manifest like. So it could look like misalignment, presumably, yeah. you know, one bit of the business going this direction and another going in a totally other direction. It could it could, by the sound of it, mean tension. So yes. you've got things not quite, people not quite agreeing, or divisions or functions not quite agreeing. Um, and it also sounds like it can also just be a lack of clarity by the sounds yes. of it. Yeah, there's right. definitely something about that lack of clarity, which brings us into that you know, lack of narrative as an organisation as well. But there's definitely something about just a sense of confusion. And that's really what yes. chaos is to some degree is, you know, it is that we're just confused because we can't make sense and bring an order to it. Now, some people will say you can't bring order to chaos and actually chaos is good for innovation and things like that. Yes, it is, but you can find order in chaos. And if you leave chaos unchecked from an innovation perspective under that guise, it can become toxic if you're not allowing things to be put in place that can allow some element of control. You touch on neuroscience quite a bit in the book. And of course, neuroscience tells us, doesn't it, that our brains don't like chaos. No. <laughs> We'd rather have bad news than no news. Yes. We yes. don't want that vacuum because if we have a vacuum, then we just fill it with all kinds of stuff that's probably worse than the actual thing yes. that's really going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly that. I was intrigued by a passage entitled To Lead Isn't to Change, where you write, change has become an epidemic inside our organisations and a defining trait of any leader is now seen as their ability to transform. But in actual fact, you know, this should not be their defining characteristic. So, yeah, talk to us about change and the role of an effective leader. Bold statements in there, aren't there? <laughs> um, so I, I do, this is a, a, a bit of a bugbear really so I do think we have got too consumed by change and leaders feeling that they need to change things as soon as they step into an organization or be in a in a constant state of change which is essentially chaos to, to lead and I I don't think that's right because you don't need to change everything and I remember having a conversation with a client and they were saying I just I don't know how I will step into their shoes because I'm really aligned to what they're doing so looking at six they were looking at succession of them stepping into their current boss's position and I said but you don't need to change it if you agree with the direction that person's taking it and that's what you want to continue you might do that in a different way but if you're fundamentally agreeing and your values are aligned then then that's okay but I could feel this sense of but I've got to change stuff and it's like no you don't <laughs> we need to stop thinking that that's what leadership is so there's lots of things about being an effective leader, you know, being very genuine, not having a say-do gap, so having high integrity, leading with empathy, and being knowledgeable enough to know when you're knowledgeable and when you're not, and when to say, I don't know that, and bring other people in. But it's also about creating that followership and people being with you and wanting to work with you and support you and do things with you, all of those things. If you're constantly changing stuff all the time, you know, we've said the we don't like that. Our brains don't like that constant change. If you're doing that all the time and you want me to follow you, I'm going to be really stuck doing that because I don't know where we're going next because there's just too much change. And really, as a leader, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to lead people 
um, in a direction. So having some stability and some steadiness, I just think is really important. You're reminding me of when I reached out to you to help me with something at AB. I can't even remember what we were changing. But at the end of my presentation that I was sort of walking you through, you said, so tell me what's not going to change. I said, oh, there's a load of things that's not going to change. And you said, well, write them down. And I thought, yeah, that's a good point. You know, even amid some change, there are constants that people can hold on to. And where you can give people that surety that something familiar is going to carry on, it's lovely to know about those things, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, you know, when I when I look at, you know, organizations, communication teams, how things have evolved for communications over time, I, I have, you know, quite a concern about the amount of change roles that are permanent roles inside organizations. Like that's not ch- if you're constantly changing and it's a permanent role, like if you're going through a project, there should be a start and an end, and then it becomes business as usual. Yes, there's there might be lots of things going on and lots of projects, but actual significant change. Is that really going on all the time or have we just created it as something uh, to, to focus on and to, you know, to help us manage the chaos? We've just called it change and put someone in that role to try and make sense of it and help us do it. I think we are both fans of the same book reading yours. So Sapiens, I'm mm-hmm. going to absolutely butcher his name. Yuval Noah, <laughs> Yuval Noah Harari. I think that might be right, but my apologies. He writes about, well, essentially he writes about the cognitive revolution, doesn't he? In an mm. early chapter, I think it's called the tree of knowledge. And, and basically this cognitive revolution that Sapiens went through enabled us to transmit information about conceptual things. So whether that's religion, the law, money, and of course, organizations. And he, he brilliantly brings this to life with a story about Peugeot, the car company. And he says, yes, it has physical things. It makes physical things. It employs over 100,000 people, but it could lose or change any of these things and still be Peugeot. It's what lawyers call a legal fiction. Now, you go on to write that the creation of an organisation has allowed us to put a barrier between ourselves and consequence. And we see this all too often. So I was just really curious by that. What is this barrier that we're putting um, between ourselves and our organisations? Explain all this to me. (laughs) So this is linked heavily to accountability, which I think is something that we struggle with. um, And I think some leaders really struggle with. And it's because we've got this barrier of an organisation. And I think in Sapiens, he also uses the example um, of way back when, if I bought, if you made carts, Katie, and I came and bought a cart from you, I'm buying a cart from Katie. If my cart breaks, I can come to Katie and say, Katie, my cart's broken and you can fix it, right? It's a lovely interaction. If there's then a, you know, a Peugeot between me and Katie that's been made up as an organization, Katie will go, oh, it's, it's nothing to do with me. Uh, you know, you'll have to take it up with, you know, with Persia. I, I just, I'm just a franchise, you know, whatever it might be, we've created this ability to blame something that doesn't exist. And I don't think that's healthy when it comes to accountability. And I think that barrier allows us to disassociate ourselves from the consequences of the actions that are part of that organisation. And in the book, there are some case studies in there of organisations that are good examples of chaos. And some of those, you can see that. So, you know, Carillion is, is in the book, Patisserie Valerie, organisations like that. And you can see where it that that accountability or 
the blame or whatever it might be, it is so far away from the individual because you can just disassociate from it because of, of the, the myth of the brand or the myth of the company that's been created. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you're right, organisations are just collections of people. And once you get above a certain number, and I think Yuval says this in the book, it's about 150. Yeah. And as soon as you get above that, you know, chaos is likely to reign or you're going to need structures yes. around yeah. your communications. There are organisations where people feel very intensely that they that they are the brand, that they represent it and they're advocates for it. And there are other organisations, exactly as you're describing, I've worked inside them, where there is just not that sense of ownership, maybe not that sense of belonging internally to really represent it. And there's buck passing then and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. Is that a cultural thing, do you think? Or is that something deeper I think it's also a, a byproduct of what the company does. So if it's a company that does things that are incredibly beneficial to the environment, to charity, to whatever it might be, your sense of purpose and being the brand, I'd imagine, is, is much easier than if you're selling cars to some degree. Mm. But there's definitely a cultural piece and there's definitely there's definitely something about, you know, the leadership and and how much they embody the brand as well. I think if the leadership are disassociated, and I've worked with leaders where they refer to the company as something else, you know, so it feels really distant, then, then you're allowing everyone else to follow that. So I think there is that, you know, what are the leadership doing? What's the language that's being used around the company? Um, and then how that manifests itself inside the organisation as a culture. So let's get to the heart of the book, which is the field model. Uh, and basically, essentially, I saw this as a route map to take organisations from that chaos that we were talking about to calm. So tell us about your three crucial steps to doing that. So yes, the field model. I, I couldn't think of a name for it. So I've just taken my name. And I, <laughs> it makes me cringe a little bit if I'm going, I've got to embrace it now, haven't I? Um, Absolutely. So the field model has the three stages of understand, diagnose and fix. And this is all about trying to help organisations and teams fix things for the long term. So you're not just fixing the symptom. And I always use a bit of a medical analogy when I talk about it, because if you had a headache and you took a painkiller, you're treating the symptom of the headache. If the reason for your headache is that you have poor eyesight, then your treatment would be a new pair of glasses. You wouldn't need the painkillers. They might do a good job of fixing the symptom, but they're not dealing with the root cause. And that's what the field model is, is really designed to do. So understand is when you can see the chaos, you can see the high turnover, you can see things not working. Diagnose is where you, you find the right ways to ask the right questions to get underneath the issue. And it has to be the right way for your culture, for the symptoms that you've got, and there's different ways of, of diagnosing. And then the fix covers all sorts of things from, from development to policy and procedural change. Um, it can sometimes identify people that maybe shouldn't be in that organization anymore. So it's, it can be quite uncomfortable. Um, it can be uncomfortable because sometimes you're finding things that people know are there, but they just don't really want to talk about <laughs> Or that uh, they don't know are there, and this is brand new information, and and that can you know can be the same. But it it works across every aspect of the organisation, and it's designed to be applied to organisations as a whole, or just uh, across teams. Uh, it can be used in in different ways depending on the size of the team and organisation. 
And it's fine for communications teams to use this model, presumably, because you are going to find things that extend well beyond the remit of comms, aren't you, that are going to need fixing? Yes. Yeah, definitely. You're comfortable with that? Yeah, and and we we fix more than that. So you know, when we when we do the field model, when I do the field model, I will uncover things that are you know you need policies here. You need you know these people maybe shouldn't still be in the organisation. There's a big problem over here that needs to be. You know, you're looking at the whole organisation. Communication for me is always the bit that underpins a lot of those things. So if we've identified that you know there's a lack of HR policies. It's because people feel that there's, uh, you know, people might talk about things being unfair. And quite often, when you then go and have conversations, people will say, oh, yeah, we've got those policies. We've got that and we've got this. And, and so you're dealing with the rumour mill quite often that's, that's created this chaos um, that you're having to unravel. So it, that is often part of it, but it's definitely much broader than communications. And you can apply the model to communications, but you can apply the model to to other things as we have looked at doing for organizations where they just need to look at the kind of policies and not policies but the procedures and the operating model if you like to take the chaos out of that so you can apply it to every different aspect of the organization but the communication inside the organization is always part of the solution the diagnose step to me seems really key here because that's when as you say you're getting to the root causes of the problems that you initially see on the surface, you're getting actually underneath them. Can you just describe some examples that you've used in that diagnose step in terms of the kind of research you've undertaken or what you think the kind of research is that's most helpful in diagnosing those deeper problems? So I think you've always got to have some one-to-one interviews. doesn't matter what the size of the organisation is. You've got to have conversations. We can often be lazy and just do a survey and think that will give us all the answers. It doesn't. Uh, It needs to have a role, you know, but it's not going to be the only way for you to get underneath a a root cause. So you're going to have to make time for those one-to-one conversations. Also having a bit of a hypothesis helps. So if you've got an idea of what you think people feel or what you think is the cause, having that to then determine the kind of questions you ask helps you make sure that you're getting to the root cause. Sometimes we can just ask a load of questions um, because we've got an objective to you know, do something. So we'll ask these questions, but you're not proving or disproving something. Um, and also the order in which you do things is important. So in some clients, we will do one-to-one interviews first and then we'll do the survey. Sometimes we'll do it the other way around. If we've got different stakeholder groups, if we're doing customers and employees, which sometimes we do to be able to, to test perception. Doing that a certain way around helps us make sure that we're asking the right questions in the survey because we've done the interviews with the customers maybe first. So we can start to see trends. Then we can go, right, well, let's verify that in the survey. So it's making sure that things are integrated and that you're pulling threads across every different aspect, but definitely one-to-one interviews. Yeah, it's interesting because when we do acid test, even if it's 30,000 people, it's interesting people will say in qualitative research how many you know how many do we have to do because mm. I've got yeah I've got I've got 30,000 people around the world and I always say well enough for a pattern to emerge yes and a pattern actually emerges quite quickly yeah. in most organizations I think it was one organization that had been built on 
rapid merger and acquisition and there was no pattern emerging because actually it was about 17 organizations not very well knitted together but normally a pattern emerges pretty quickly Mm. Um, and I like what you said in fact when we had Benjamin on Benjamin Ellis on he said the same thing about research you are testing a hypothesis yes you're not randomly asking some questions to find out what's going on you've got an assumption which hopefully you're going to Either you're going to say, yes, this I'm right or I'm wrong, but you're testing against something. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. You can tell I work with him, can't you? <laughs> yeah. His scientific method of research, I think, is 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 so helpful. I think it's because it, it just gives order and structure to it, which is brilliant. I love that you write, the calm comes from a place of curiousness, a belief that there is more going on behind the scenes and a desire to understand. So I'm just curious about curiosity really <laughs> how how important is curiosity to you in general and to making this model work so to me it's really important because you have to want to unpick stuff so you have to want to ask the questions that might not be the comfortable ones I know when we've worked together in the past you said god you really go for it um because you you have you have to want to get underneath that if you don't want to know you're going to be really comfortable dealing with symptoms because do you know what? I'm ticking a box. It's easy and it's fine. If you're not curious about, but what, you know, but why, why, why are we doing it like this? And, and what's made you decide to think like this and all of those things, you're, you're not going to ever get to the point of dealing with root cause. And it doesn't take many whys to get to the answer. I remember in one organization, it was a manufacturing yeah, it was. It was. It was making food. I'm sure it was a food manufacturing plant. And one particular employee on this assembly line was saying, "Oh, the uh, the face to face team briefing. I never get one of those. It doesn't work here." And when I kept asking why, I discovered well, it happens on a Tuesday, and she worked part time, so she just didn't get it. Mm. But it was happening. But I could have walked away from the surface of that and just, and thought that team briefings weren't happening at all. Yes. It just wasn't happening right for those part-time employees. So keeping digging away until you properly understand is so important, isn't it? Yeah, because like you said, we can interpret things and also you'll interpret things based on your bias. So if you've met the leadership team and that example you gave, you might have met them and thought they are not going to be the best communicators. Then you meet someone who says, we don't get team brief. It's it's confirmation bias at work. So you can sit there and go, well, I knew this would be the case because I've met them. So you wouldn't delve deeper. So it's it's you're kind of fighting yourself as well by asking the questions because it, you've kind of got to, to make sure that you're not bringing your bias into that conversation. The other thing I like about that qualitative research that you're talking about where you get to ask why a lot is that you can also test what might work so it you can do a little bit of flying a kite can't you with people and say oh it's interesting that that's not working for you if we did it this way would it Mm -hmm. and I think that's quite a neat thing to be able to do in those conversations do you find yourself doing that too yes I think there's definitely something about test and learn you know we don't do that enough inside organizations because I think we worry quite a lot about the impact of that I think being able to have that conversation and asking if it will work just starts to give you some of the solutions. I mean, we talk a lot about listening to understand, not to immediately fix or respond. But when you've been doing this job a long time, I will naturally start to to look for those solutions as I'm talking, um, but not commit to anything. And I think it just 
just helps you see whether you're on the right track. It's, you know, you're not going to say, you know, would it help if we fired that person? That's not the sort of thing you would test, but you would say, you know, would it help if, you know, you had, you know, a stronger sense of who was leading you? Yes, that would help. Okay, well, I can start to see, you know, what might be the issue here. And, but you, it, it is making sure you're not bringing your bias in. And I think sometimes having those interviews with, with two people doing them, uh, sense checking them with with other people is you know there's always things to do to make sure you're not not bringing that forward but definitely hypothesize test think it's a conversation mm-hmm. and I think that's you know the, the thing to remember is when you're doing the interviews you're having a conversation with somebody it doesn't need to feel rigid and structured and very formal you want it to feel relaxed and conversational Yes. I mean, I always say the method is a message, but if you can have people actually feel their shoulders drop and for once be really, really listened to, we used to say, we're going to give this person a damn good listening to. (laughs) They often feel a lot better just for offloading and you've got all this valuable intel. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm a a huge fan, fan of it. Is there any other sources of data and insight that you, on a personal level, always think, oh, yes, I'm, I always take a, a good look at that? I mean, any any sort of particular intelligence gathering that you'd use aside from the research? Um, so I'll always look at annual reports and I'll always look at if it's appropriate for the organisation, like the investors section, you know, all those kind of things. So you can see what's being said, what's being talked about, looking at what's being said outside of the company so what people say about them is is another one that's always very important to have a look at so we'd always look at things like glassdoor and that kind of stuff mm. but it's it's a lot to do with sense checking the the kind of reality of what's happening and sometimes you get that by being in the room and in the conversation so it's you know you say this but does this happen and and so much of that just comes from the conversations but i'm always looking around at the environment that i'm in you know, even if that's, you know, and has been on a Zoom call for the last however long, you can get a sense of, of what that place feels like. We'll often have a look at things like attending town halls or things like that, because that also gives you quite a nice sense of culture and whether there's anything that's, that's you know, really glaring about what might be going on. So any opportunity we've got to get in and be part of things just to listen is, is what really helps. Yeah, being a fly on the wall is just yeah. so fascinating, isn't it? And you also write, don't worry if there's no strategy from the leadership team. You can create one from the ground up. I just wondered, have you had to do this? And if so, how do you go about that challenge? Yes. <laughs> so I remember doing a, a conference for about 600 employees and not having a strategy. Wow. And thinking... I'm not really sure what we're going to talk about. And and even though I talked to to the CEO and the leadership team, there wasn't really one that was forthcoming. So so I ended up, I mean, it was very focused around the event, which then allowed me to to build my communication strategy and plan from that, if that makes sense. Uh, The event was also the start of the financial year, which was always helpful. But I focused in on on the real tactical stuff. So I was like, okay, well, what have we achieved last year? Talk to me about those things. Right, what's the focus for next year? The standard event stuff, isn't it? This is what we've done. <laughs> so, yes. so all those things that then allowed me to, to look at that from a kind of, you know, insight business intelligence perspective and go, right, I can see, you know, I can, I can group these things together into customer experience. I can group these things together into um, product innovation. I can group these, you know, so 
I could find the, you know, the pillars and things that we're always looking for, for the things. And then I can package that as a conference perspective in that way that allows us to, to tell the story and, and kind of build the strategy. So that's, mm. that's how I've done it before. Mm. And presumably you must have got to the stage where you're also helping leadership teams to start to define that strategy. I mean, comms at the end of the day, I know we shouldn't, we're there to sort of play back the strategy, make sense of the strategy. We shouldn't actually be creating it ourselves. But many of us have been in rooms where we've kind of slightly helped senior leadership teams to sort of stress stress test. That's not easy to say, a strategy. Yeah. I think possibly because we are often the independent observers to things, aren't we? Or we act in that way because we're sort of the ones listening and thinking, how are people going to react to this? Does it really make sense? Definitely. And you're right about it. it's that fine line of of kind of advising on the strategy, but but knowing your role in that. So for some people, it, they will be you know working on the strategy alongside HR finance because that's the role of the comms function. If you're not in the boardroom and doing the strategy, there's usually a role to be played of, okay, but this just, just doesn't make sense. <laughs> so I know what you're trying to do, but this just doesn't make sense. And this word is not going to resonate with, you know, 600 people out there. So I totally get it, but we've just got to just got to make this <laughs> make some sense. So I think the role is, is very varied, but I, I think we do have quite a big role to play sometimes in shaping the strategy when you need to take everybody with you on that journey. So the, the narrative around that is naturally something that falls into the hands of comms. So we must talk about chapter seven, the fix, how to make changes that last. Tell us about the Rasky model, first of all. I know some listeners will know it, some may not. I found it very useful. So I thought we could start there if that's okay. Yeah. So some people might know it as RACI, which is R-A-C-I. I have the S in it because that's how I have used it before. So you've got R-A-S-C-I. And it's basically a model for allowing you to get some structure around kind of projects or planning or whatever it might be. So the R is the person that's responsible. So that's the person that's doing the task. The A is the person that's accountable. So possibly the the head of function, if you like. S is the person who is going to support on that piece of work. C is the person that you're going to consult. And I is someone that you would inform. And you can have multiple people in support consulting form because you probably would have. But in terms of responsible and accountable, you can only have one name in those boxes because otherwise we get into a state of ambiguity. And I thought you were doing it, though you were doing it. And the RASCI is dealt, is, you know, designed to stop that. They can be overused. So I have seen them be done, you know, for everything inside an organization. Right. <laughs> and, and, and you don't need to use them for everything. But certainly if you're in a place where you're seeing people not really sure who's responsible for what and, and people very confused, I thought John was doing it, I thought Bob was doing it. Well, Let's, you know, do a rescue, map it out. You can do them in about 20 minutes. You've got a list of tasks, column for each letter, off you go. And I, I love that it's got the consult and inform in there as well, because those are the things that often trip, trip us up, don't they? Yes. yes. Oh, we forgot to consult so-and-so, so we've got to go around the houses again. Or so-and-so's thrown their toys out the pram because they weren't informed. And had yes. we told them early on, they would have said yes. And now we're in a pickle. Yeah. yeah. And also yeah. good if you've got, you know, sometimes challenging relationships. So sometimes different departments work together, but also can work in a bit of friction. So if you've got, um, you know, the sometimes, you know, the battle for who owns employee engagement between HR and comms, 
sometimes this is a nice way of being able to map things out so that everybody feels comfortable that they're involved. But maybe, you know, that person is consult and you're responsible and maybe on other things, it's the other way around. So it can be very helpful to say, look, it's okay. We're doing this together and this is how it's going to work. And I have to say from as a business leader, really nailing who is responsible and who is accountable and probably not having the same person in both of those boxes is really, really useful. Yeah, it can um, be the same, but mm. quite often if you're responsible for doing it, I mean, when it's just yeah, everything I do, I'm responsible and accountable for because it's just me. But, you know, when my when my collective team are doing things, I am accountable. They are responsible. So it, it does help if you have got different people. Um, it also helps if they're different just from a kind of catching something that might have been yes. missed and just having that kind of second set of eyes. Because the person responsible is going to be really close to whatever that is. If you're a different person that's accountable, you could have a much broader view, which just gives you an, a, a different and fresh perspective. And from your experience, what tends to be the biggest barrier when it comes to implementing a successful action plan off the back of that diagnose step when you're actually going into making the change? The biggest barrier is is time. So when I first created the model, I, I would talk a lot about the fact that this is just time. There's not, you know, the, the fix is very rarely a list of things that are going to cost a fortune. <laughs> it's actually about focusing time on the things that, that need to be done. And so that's that's the biggest barrier. So sometimes we'll work with clients where you know they need a dedicated resource of right, well, can you come in and just you know oversee this and just project manage this for us? To, to help us, um, which which works because then they're not they're not giving that away in terms of that responsibility. It's a case of right, we've identified this. Can you then help make it happen? And uh, that that does happen. Other times, it's a case of great, we'll take this and we'll go off and run with it, and then we just check in with them and see how they're going from an implementation perspective. Um, but some things take time. There's always quick fixes in there. There'll be things that you can do really quickly to to make a change. But there are things that that can take you know, six months, a year, 18 months to do. But it they will, you know, with the clients we've worked with, they've all implemented things and created change on the back of doing the model. How important is it to get teams to identify things that they should stop doing as well as things that they should start doing in terms of making that? Because time is finite, isn't it? We yes. only have a certain amount of hours in the day. So it's a choice, isn't it, about how you're going to yeah. use that time. So yeah. are you actually encouraging often people to sort of to strike things off their to-do list potentially? Yeah, it's a lot of challenging of why are we doing it like this? Right. <laughs> um, okay. You know what? Because because quite often you'll find that there's multiple meetings or multiple things in place that's just wasting time. So how, when you've got that outsider coming in to look at it to say, well, but but how is this helpful? And actually, you know, no one person is an island. They can't be. You know, this needs to feed into here and this needs to pull through. So there is a bit of stop doing, but there's also a bit of this is this is just you've created a monster of bureaucracy that we can just take take away um and that's often the case in organizations you know, we, we've always done it this way so we're just used to spending used three to days do doing this um and so it, it's it's those kind of things that, that you can change so yes you do naturally find things that you can stop uh, and things that you you don't do anymore or finding things that actually address the things you're trying to address so again you you, you kind of in a perpetual field model in the way, because you'll uncover something and go, okay, I can see why you why you have, you know, that initiative, 
but that's not actually addressing what you're trying to address. You've done it because you might have seen a case study and you think this will work here, but it's not. Actually, all it's done is made everybody go to these people to deliver something that should be company-wide. So actually what we need to do is stop that, make a change, and then go forward. So there's a lot of things that you might be unpicking that have been around for a long time. So in short, you can validate things that you're doing at the moment, check, are they working? Are they actually just addressing a symptom rather than a cause? If they are, we can stop it and start to actually address something deeper rooted. Yes. It it also strikes me that this would be a really good thing to do. I mean, obviously, if you're an independent consultant, you can come in and you can be in that sort of challenge kind of place, can't you? But also if you're new to an organisation. Oh, yes. Um, It's a great thing to do very early on because you can go around asking lots of awkward questions that, you know, aren't loaded because you don't know the history. It strikes me that this would be a really good tactic very early on to go through this process. Would that be fair? Yeah. And and as you've said that, I'm thinking it's probably where it comes from for me because I've had to set up so many functions that I've always had to ask all all those questions because it was a brand new function. So you do that four times, you're naturally going through this, this process. I was talking to one of my uh, one of my friends the other day about they started a new job and they were getting really annoyed about certain procedures and things that were in place. And I said, you've got a finite window to ask these awkward questions. <laughs> so go for it, because you're not going to have this forever. And I think I always think you've got about three months to be awkward yes. and then you've got to start playing the game. <laughs> but I think your first three months of listening and asking, that's your window for absolutely looking at something like this. You write that applying this model involves learning not just about your organisation, but about yourself. And I think we've hinted at this already in this conversation. But tell us a little bit more about, well, perhaps what you've you've learned about yourself through this process. So it's easy to look at everything else and think everything else is wrong. There's all this chaos around me and I'm amazing. <laughs> That's not how I start my day, by the way. <laughs> it's my affirmation of the morning. Um, but you have to look at your role in how you're enabling those surroundings so we might you know and and we're guilty of things like really tactical things so when I do my productivity workshops I talk about ASAP not being a deadline right so if you're someone that constantly says oh yeah just send it to me you know as soon as possible you're you're creating you know a little bit of chaos in there because what's as soon as possible to you is not as soon as possible to me so that's not particularly helpful So you have to make some changes to how you work in order to make changes to the things around you. And that's just a bit that's often missed is that, you know, introspective looking that, okay, what do I need to do differently? Do I always say this? Does it really get me the answer I need? No, maybe I should try something different. It's having that moment of reflection and thinking about your involvement in that. With the field model, we're often working with, you know, the the leadership of the organisation so if you're talking to the MD or the founder or the owner or whatever, that, that can be quite difficult because quite often you're, you're doing things that you've always done um, and you maybe aren't always used to somebody saying you need to change how you do things because not often people will say that to a, a CEO or an, or an owner. So it, it is really important. And actually, if you don't do that at the same time, you're not going to get the results that you want to get because there will be bits that we will uncover that will be linked to behavior always uh, and how that behavior needs to change, whether that's the leadership team, whether it's individuals, whatever that might be, there's nearly always a behavior element to it. So that begs the question, how important is buy-in 
at the beginning of these projects? Because I certainly know when we do acid tests, that is essential. It's essential to ideally have the CEO on board saying, I get it. I know why we have to do it. I support it and I'm going to get involved. Is that also important for this work as well? It sounds like it will be. Yeah. And, and to be honest, we generally work with the CEO and, and, and the, the owners of the companies, depending on the size. So they have the buy-in. Sometimes they'll talk to me and think, this sounds, you know, this sounds great, but we're okay for now. And then it's usually a couple of years later, they'll pick up the phone again and go, okay, we're, we're really in chaos now. So now we need you to come back. So it, it takes a while to, to recognize the need to, to do it. And you have to be ready for that conversation. You know, I've had conversations with other organizations where we've talked about, you know, predominantly communication is the focus. But in those conversations, I can quite easily see you're not ready for me to come into your organization. I, I could I could do this. It would be fine. But I, my work is about really diagnosing stuff. And if you just want a nice, pretty, you know, pretty picture in a nice magazine, and a bit, you know, that's great. But that's not what I do. And it will just be uncomfortable all round <laughs> if you're not ready. Yes. So, so there is there is that element of of being ready, and that's where the buy in comes from. Um, but I, I also think you need the buy in from everybody else. So, with the work that we do, where you know, we're doing the listening interviews, having that clarity of, you know, why that's happening, making sure people know that if they weren't picked, it's not because they, you know, for any reason, it was a random sample, or it has to be a constant conversation about the fact that this is happening, and then sharing the results of that um, back. But sharing the results back with the understanding people stuff that I talk about. So when I shared this back to, to whole organizations, I always do the people bit in that share so that people understand why they might be feeling the way that they're feeling and why we did the piece of work. Because mm. I can see those shoulders go down of I'm not alone and it's okay to feel like this, which is just, you know, you know I've had people nearly, you know, in tears saying, just thank you for sharing that because it just made things make sense. Uh, and that's, you know, sad, but also lovely that you've been able to help someone realise that they're not alone. Mm. I'm also thinking about the sort of diversity in the sample of people you speak to. I should probably ask this question earlier, but certainly we would kind of look for at least three different types of people, you know, the, the champions, the bystanders, the obstructors, you know, there's, there's many people inside an organisation, their motivation is never what you're initially told. So I've been told many times, oh, this person really shouldn't be here. They're really unhappy. When you sit in a room, you close the door and it's a confidential conversation. You discover that they absolutely love the organisation, but there's something that just frustrates them. Mm. Um, how important is it for you to make sure that you're getting that sort of 360 in terms of all the different types of personality and sentiment within an organisation? So for me, I focus more on the different different functions and different parts of the business certainly in some organizations there aren't different people right we're part of the challenge so if you've got you know a copycat recruitment model um then you don't then you've just got everybody everybody's really nice it's like a family everyone's really nice okay red flag red flag red flag so we'll we'll start to look at that so i tend to focus more on the you know the the org chart and I need you know enough of a representation because I'm I'm also looking quite a lot of leadership you know throughout those conversations and if I don't get the spread across the business I'm not going to be able to identify that kind of middle manager potential issue which is often always you know part of that conversation so I, I also I like the idea of doing that okay well if you were to group them with the you know the bystander and those things 
that would be really helpful. But like you said, it, it's not often the reasons that you think are there. Um, and you can uncover things that are actually, you know, you think this, but actually they think something totally different. So yeah, the, the breadth of the organisation is the bit we focus on. Yeah, that makes sense. So I was just going to ask you before we go to those quick fire questions, what is the kind of one message you would love readers to take away from this book? If you could sort of encapsulate that in a, in a nutshell. The one message would be that you can, you can fix anything inside your organisation with communication because you, you absolutely can. At the end of the day, if we didn't communicate, there would be no business exactly. going on in a way. Exactly. Because organisations are people. <laughs> so because you've appeared on this show a few times, I have shaken up these quick fire questions. <laughs> I know that you are a, a voracious reader. So I was just keen on getting at least one book recommendation from you. Um, oh God, one is really hard. Um, it doesn't have to be one. Okay. You can do more than one. Okay, thanks. I'm going to do two, which, are the, which were two of the books I read last year that I really enjoyed. One is The Science of Fear by Dan Gardner, which is incredibly helpful uh, if you're looking at how fear works for us as humans and, and how it can manifest the role of the media. Um, I was reading it in February, uh, just as the wow. pandemic was. So it was really helpful for me to be reading it on the train and, and kind of being able to, to ground myself and not get wound up by you know media numbers statistics it, it was incredibly helpful from a resilience perspective to read it as well as interesting so science of fear is one and then the other one has to be the midnight library by matt haig which i've talked about a lot uh, and recommended it to everybody i've bought it for several people um, because i just think it's brilliant it's a fiction book uh, if you haven't read it honestly i laughed i cried um it was it was just wonderful just wonderful it's on my list because you spoke so highly of it last year. So I'm looking forward to reading it. So has being president of CIPR changed your view of the comms profession? And if so, how? It hasn't really. I think the one thing I think it has done is highlighted how broad the profession is. So when you're in that role of, of president, you're you're sort of seeing the entire PR landscape um, all the time, which sometimes makes you feel like you're not really achieving anything because you're just because there's just so much. But having that that over that oversight, not in that sense, but you know what I mean, like being able to see it all is just incredible when you look at the amount of work that is done by communication professionals, the amount of impact it has on society as a whole. Um, maybe being in a pandemic year has probably highlighted that more than ever. And just a huge respect for people that are doing the role, no matter where they're doing that role or how they're doing it, because it's always a challenging task to be the mm. person that's, you know, being that voice of reason or being the voice of challenge or whatever it might be. So I think it's just the sheer volume and the sheer breadth of what we do. Um, so it hasn't changed my perception of it, but it's given me a better understanding. Of a really... Yeah, appreciation yeah, real of appreciation of just, you know, gosh, how much, how much, how much goes into it all in every different aspect of the world as well. So two questions borrowed from the great James Lipton. I don't know if you ever used to watch inside the actor's studio, but anyway, I'm going to do a poor imitation. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? So I always wanted to be a police officer. Oh, 
So sort of forensic scientist, but it probably was shaped by watching the bill as a child. Um, so yeah, police officer would always be my, to go off and be a detective. I would love that. You I never know. <laughs> There's some alignment, though, being yes. a detective with what? Because I, I often used to think that in my early days of a journalist, that there was there was something about the detective in that as well, which was interesting. So what profession would you not like to do? So I can say this because my sister is currently studying to be a nurse and um, has spent the last kind of 18 months working for the NHS and also in a care home that I don't want to go into nursing. <laughs> Um, I admire her tremendously for the work that she does and the care and everything, but it's not for me. So uh, not the caring bit, but just some of the, you know, looking after people and some of the jobs that have to be done in some of that, that I just think I just applaud anyone that is doing that because it's just something I would not want to attempt. So finally, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? All I would want to hear is welcome. Oh, nice. I like it. Because that's all I would need to, to know. That You're I was in the welcome. right place. That I was welcome, which I thought yes. was, yeah. Excellent. I love it. Jenny, as ever, it's been great fun chatting to you. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a shout out on social media. You'll find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. I love getting feedback from listeners and thank you for those that do that. And also you can help other IC folk out there find this show simply by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you do decide to do that, then thank you very much. To find the links to the books and the other resources that Jenny and I spoke about, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter, AB Thinks. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. We have more great guests still coming up in this season. The behavioural science guy, William Leach, who is the author of Marketing to Mind States and the co-founder of A Leader Like Me, the IC consultant, Advita Patel. So you might want to hit that subscribe button today. All that remains is to say thank you for being here. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts. <laughs>